So, Kyle, give us the, the go-ahead on, like, if our levels are good and when we can start and that kind of thing. And yeah. in the meantime, Phil, uh, just as a quick heads up, um, you know, you'll be episode, I think, 25 of this thing. Uh, we, like, talk to writers all the time and editors and comedians and journalists. And uh, basically, you know, we'll spend most of the show talking about, like, your career, a bunch of questions that we have. Uh, you know, we want you to definitely, like, lead the conversation in any direction that you want us to. Um, we have, like, kind of like a, a baseline or blueprint of, of how we will take this thing. But feel free to derail it at any point and talk about whatever it is that you want to talk about. Um, and on that same note, like, let us know if there's anything that you don't want to talk about. And then okay. uh, we, like, towards the end, we'll basically say, like, so, you know, we bring people on the show to talk about the one story they always struggle to tell. And, uh, you know, we can do that based loosely off of what you sent us via email. Or if you have something else, we can do that as well. Um, and then at any point in the next, like, month, if, if you, like, remember something that you wish that you hadn't said, yeah. uh, you know, just feel free to tell us and we'll get rid of it. Like, you know, we're not trying to catch you in a gotcha moment or anything. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. The, the one story that I've been trying to tell, figuring out how to tell recently is what it means to be a father, but I probably don't know what that means yet. Uh, <laughs> well, but, yeah. I mean, it's it, it would be an interesting perspective to for a new father because I'm sure you have a million feelings about that, um, and also like you know it's not like you're uh, not like you're completely foreign to the idea of, of you know what a father should and, and does do you know you had one, so yeah. um cool so Kyle we good to go yeah we're good to go um, we've got good levels we've got uh, levels for both of you which is probably more important um, we're rolling. Cool. Uh, so we are recording, Phil, just FYI. Um, and I'm going to do like a just like a two second intro and then Kyle and I redo the intros and the outros later on. Um, sure. Uh, so today on the show, we have Phil Cly. Phil is the author of Redeployment, which won the National Book, War Book Award in 2014. Uh, welcome, Phil. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. You know, we're really excited. Uh, the first author that we ever had on the show was Matt Gallagher, who I know is is uh, very friendly with you, and he he is, and he specifically asked me to uh, to ask you about Biggie versus Tupac. Oh, Matt's a moron. Uh, <laughs> is, is a fantastic writer. Uh, I I guess it's because he he grew, he didn't even grow up on the on the West Coast. He grew up around uh, Reno and. Um, so I guess he's got some sort of loyalty toward Tupac, but uh, I mean, as a writer, it, it, there's no contest. It's 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 offensive that they're even considered in the same category. I don't really know how our listeners are going to take that, but I mean, I, I'm with you. It's Biggie every time. But <laughs> I hope that we we have more East Coast fans than West Coast. Maybe uh, maybe yeah. I I like Kendrick. Yeah, I love Kendrick. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about Chance? Chance, I like Chance. Yeah, um, I haven't uh, I haven't spent as much time listening to Chance as, as maybe I should. I'm gonna blame that on New Fatherhood. Okay, that's Ch fair. Chance, Chance is a Chicago guy, though. Well, yeah, that's why I asked. He kind of splits the difference, and he's uh, he's got more of a wholesome slant. Now that you're a new father, that might be right. uh, something to play for your your brand new baby when they're ready. You, you don't think Biggie would be appropriate? You know what? Maybe I, I feel like Biggie <laughs> might be something that you ease into. 
Uh, I could be wrong. I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a parent. Well, Phil, I've, I've, uh, you know, to start us off, um, I want to say, you know, I read redeployment two years ago when it came out and I loved it. Uh, I was actually at the 2014 national book awards and I saw you give your speech when you, when you won the award. Um, so congratulations. Uh, yeah. And, and, and one of the questions that like, you know, has been on my mind since I read it, um, and I read it again, you know, just last week, but you, when you were serving, uh, were a public affairs officer. Yeah. Uh, so you were kind of like a war correspondent or like a liaison between the military, the government, the media. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, was redeployment kind of an extension of the work that you did in the army? I mean, I guess so. In, in, in so far as part of the job of public affairs is to tell the Marine story. Uh, obviously I think I, I told that story with, a. <clears throat> A greater degree of freedom, um, maybe than I could if I was still in uniform. Yeah, and I mean, I guess, like, I, I'm sorry, backing up a little bit. Do you want to tell our listeners what redeployment is all about if they don't know? Yeah, sure. It's a book of twelve short stories, uh, all told by soldiers or Marines or um, mostly Marines. There's one foreign service officer. Uh, but all folks who've spent time in Iraq. And some of the stories take place stateside. Some of them take place uh, in in country. Um, and uh, oh, one second. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, there's uh, uh, something... Uh, it was like a small fatherhood thing that had happened. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> start that over. Yeah. So I mean, we we can we can cut whatever. It's not a big deal. I, I apologize. No, it's no, no problem no. at all. Yeah, I was yes. I was serious. I wasn't being snarky. It's yeah. definitely more important than this. So. <laughs> um, yeah. So redeployment's a book of twelve short stories. They're all told uh, in first person by. Uh, different characters who've spent time in Iraq. Most of them are Marines. One of them is a foreign service officer. There's a soldier who is a psychological operations specialist. Uh, but they're all people doing different jobs. So, you know, one of the guys is doing reconstruction projects in Iraq. One of them is a mortuary affairs specialist, the guys who are tasked with recovering the bodies of, of the dead. Um, uh, you know, an artilleryman, infantryman, that kind of thing. Uh, and so you get people who are in Iraq at different times doing different jobs. So... I mean, you know, as a public affairs officer, uh, you know, you were actually, I think, more suited than anybody to to write these stories because you had so many different perspectives in there. And, you know, as a as a, a, a PAO, you know, you were really like able to access those different stories. Um, I, I, I don't think it's any accident. I, you know, I spent time with uh, all different types of types of folks. I'd, I'd go out on patrol with a, a group of infantrymen. I'd. I'd um, you know, you know, go on a mission with engineers and see what they did. Um, you know, spend time with mortuary affairs folks. So, yeah, that definitely influenced, I think, the shape of the book, or at least certainly when I came back, uh, you know, the sense that there was this much broader world of, of you know, the military than, than maybe people thought. I think, you know, people think of the Iraq War. Shoot, I don't know, maybe they think of uh, American Sniper um, or, um, you know, the Hurt Locker or whatever, they don't necessarily think of the guy uh, recovering the bodies of the dead. 
it's uh i mean it's so a lot of the stories that you tell in the book are you know pretty haunting um you know i have a lot of friends that uh you know that served over in iraq and afghanistan and and when i read redeployment it gave me an entirely new perspective on you know what some of them were probably doing over there uh and i guess you know i, I know one of the big reasons that you wrote this book and you wanted to tell these stories is so that you could you know, help people, you know, start the conversation because you think it's, it's, you know, really important for, you know, civilians to be involved in that kind of conversation. Um, so I, I guess, you know, what is your relationship to like fiction versus nonfiction with this book? Because I mean, it is all, you know, as far as I know, fiction, but you know, all of these are probably based with like a little bit of a kernel of truth. Sure. Sure. And I did, you know, I did interviews with people before I, started writing about you know, the kinds of things that I wrote about and, and, you know, read a lot of books, read a lot of journalism. Um, so, I mean, for me, fiction is, is, is this place where I can take whatever it is that, that, that troubles or confuses me about an experience uh, or that I really want to express. And I can put it into a situation where I can put that, that idea or that emotion under as much pressure as possible. Right. And I can force my characters through experiences that really, you know, kind of push them um, further than I might be able to if I were just relying on strictly reported fact, right? The, um, you know, the thing with fiction is it's a given that the stories aren't uh, real. They didn't actually happen. These are fictional characters. But, you know, that means that the emotional truth has to be spot on. Um, you know, it doesn't matter that, uh, Homer, for example, didn't really know how chariots were used, uh, you know, during the time that he's talking about, right? He got that wrong. Uh, he was clearly from another age, but he did know about war and about the things that happened in war. Um, I wonder when you're, when you're writing the accounts of these people who maybe you had less experience with than the other departments that you dealt with as a public affairs officer, was there any pressure there that you put on yourself personally to try and be as accurate in that emotional representation as possible? Like, were you worried at all that th the parts you were less familiar with might not do the subject matter justice? I was worried about all of it, but you know, there's, there's, there's ways in which that's an asset, right? I, I, I wrote with this imaginary line of like veterans waiting outside the door to kick my ass if I got things wrong. And that's helpful. <laughs> um, yeah. But I also read enough memoirs um, <laughs> to the point where, you know, I almost think that sometimes it's a hindrance if you think you know your subject, mm. um, you know, because we all lie to ourselves, right? And so the, the, the sense that you don't have the right to tell the story that you're telling uh, is probably a good thing. It's probably useful, right? Um, and, you know, we... <laughs> We all tell ourselves a kind of version of events that, um, you know, that, that might not conform with the way that sort of other people in our lives uh, would, would see things or, you know, the way our ex-girlfriends might see things. Uh, if they were to <laughs> for instance. Them. Yeah, just, you know, just, <laughs> just off instance. the cuff. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, at a certain point I had to, you know, I did a you know I did a bunch of research or I, I 
uh, read a lot. I tried to make myself educated on the subjects. And then at a certain point, it wasn't so much about feeling like I had to be true to any one individual's experience or understanding of their job and what it meant. Um, but I had to create a plausible character, right? Mm -hmm. With, with, uh, you know, a certain kind of depth and, and emotional range so the reader could connect to it. If I was, if I was, you know, putting them in, in situations that could happen, uh, you know, it, it was all about sort of developing how it would affect that character and not necessarily expressing how, you know, any one individual that I talked to, uh, you know, might spin their experiences. I think, you know, that, that, that would trap me. There's another so it, it's in. Oh, I was gonna it, it, go ahead. No, I was just gonna continue in the same thread because this is something that always fascinates me about uh, stories that are based in truth, but where you hear the author talk about having to stretch certain things emotionally or being able to create situations that drive at that emotional pressure that we were talking about earlier. And one of the things that I've always wanted to ask people who talk about this is how far are you comfortable pushing the truth in service of the emotion? Like uh, how, especially with subject matter like this, how comfortable or how far, I guess, are you willing to push the truth of the story to get to the heart of the emotional matter? Like uh, I'm thinking specifically about the instance of in redeployment where the, 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 the Marine is talking to the chaplain about maybe or maybe not shooting civilians. Right. Um, yeah, it's funny. I, you know, I never, I, I don't think of it that way. Um, I guess I don't think of it as, you know, am I going to push this truth further to get to this point? I mean, there, there are instances in the book where I did something, um, almost like deliberately wrong, right? Or counter um, to what I'd been told. So, um, you know, for one, yeah, you mentioned that scene, all right? A, you know, a guy sort of telling that story to the chaplain is is certainly out of the, out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's another instance in the story bodies uh, where the, you know, narrator talks about sort of how he never believed in ghosts, right? Um, and that story is very much about his sort of relationship to his own and other people's bodies. Um, and in uh, this one book called Shade of Black by a mortuary affairs specialist, she talks specifically, the authors talk specifically about how belief in ghosts was a constant, right? Uh, among the guys in that unit. And I it just seemed to make sense to me in terms of what I wanted to explore and also maybe just kind of stake out a territory that was different was to go, okay, so this is the unit personality, but my guy, like my narrator, he's going to be the guy who doesn't believe in that, mm. right? Like going to be the thing that distinguishes him and that'll be my entry point into the experience somehow. Now, what about situations where, you know, for example, one of my oldest friends is, uh, you know, a veteran of the Afghanistan, um, you know, tour, uh, sorry, I said that wrong. Uh, one of my oldest friends was in Afghanistan on a tour, and you know, just today I asked him if he wanted to go see, you know, the Billy Lynn. The veteran uh, of the Afghanistan tour sounds like he was the veteran of like uh, like an Eagles cover band. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Afghanistan yeah, he, playing for the troops. He he go he went all over the place. 
But no, I, I mean, I, I texted him today and I asked if he wanted to see Billy Lynn's long halftime walk because you know I'm a huge fan of the book and you know, admittedly the the trailer for the the movie doesn't look great, but um, you know, and right off the bat he just immediately said like, no, I I can't really do you know the Hollywood version of war movies and like that was yeah. that. Um, and I mean, maybe it's you know insensitive of me because I didn't like you know twice but but. I mean, I don't know. Is there, like, a protocol there? I mean, it's just going to depend on the individual, right? I, I, you know, for me, I'd rather be asked than not asked, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> certainly complaining about Hollywood movies is, is a long, I think as long as there's been, you know, war movies, there's been veterans complaining about it. Uh, there's a great <laughs> uh, James Jones essay for Harper's called Phony War Films, where uh, it wasn't for Harper's, it was for the Saturday Evening Post, and they like contracted him to sit down and watch like four or five World War II movies, and then tell him how how he felt about it. It's a very cranky article. Um, uh, even crankier is because of uh, 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 Hesford's, uh, the, the author of the Short Timers, that um, uh, wrote a, uh, which was then made into um, uh, what's the uh, the movie. Uh, with Arlie Army as the drill instructor, uh, uh, Full Metal full, Jacket. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he he wrote a review of Rambo Two uh, for Penthouse, uh, which is uh, very much worth checking out. Uh, just a sort of one long rant. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know. It, it depends. I I knew a veteran when he came back from from Iraq. All he did was watch romantic comedies, right? <laughs> He was just like, my life was an action movie. I just want to see J-Lo finding love, you know? <laughs> like, I do not need to see any of that stuff. Um, well, well, I mean, I guess one, one of my big questions is, you know, you think it's very important for veterans to tell their stories and for, you know, us as civilians to listen. Um, you know, in fact, when you won the National Book Award, one of your lines was, uh, you know, in your speech was, I can't think of a more important conversation to be having. And, you know, I 100% agree with that sentiment, but what happens when, you know, Kyle or I asks one of our veteran friends about, you know, their experience and they don't want to talk about it? Right. So it's not just that I think that, you know, vets should tell a story and civilians should sit back passively and listen. It's that, like, civilians can have a conversation about war, Right. A lot of things that I have to tell you about war, I didn't get from personal experience. I got through reading and, and sort of being studied on on the subject. And um, you know, it's it's perfectly possible for uh, a civilian to have a really you know complicated, rich, and nuanced take on war. I think the Billy Lynn's long halftime walk is one of the great Iraq War novels. Ben Fountain is not a veteran, right? But mm -hmm. you know, to go back to me harping on memoir, and I don't mean to harp on memoir as a genre. I like a lot of memoirs, but um, uh, you know, it, it just seems like this, you know, it's one genre where, you know, if anything's going to have a kind of authority, it would be that. And Fountain understands the Iraq war better than a lot of memoirs that I've read. Um, you know, because he, he put the effort in, right? So it's, you know, for me, it's not that, you know, civilians need to sit passively and listen to a veteran telling them their stories. Um, and it's not necessarily that, you know, People should push to get stories out of somebody uh, who doesn't want to tell, right? Because, you know, 
you don't know where that person is in, in, in terms of their, um, you know, coming to terms with uh, their experience and how much they want to talk about it. Uh, or, you know, just kind of what they're frustrated by. I, you know, one guy, he has no problem telling war stories. He just gets irritated because every time he tells war stories, you know, at a bar or whatever, uh, people just automatically assume either that he has PTSD or that he's a psychopath. Um, mm -hmm. He's neither of the things. It's just that, you know, a lot of people haven't uh, uh, kind of encountered anything remotely like what he's been through. And so him talking as if something that happens in war is relatively normal, which it would be to somebody who's been through what, he, what he's been through, makes him sound like a lunatic uh, in their eyes, right? But, you know, he's perfectly fine. I think that, yeah, it's not just that people should passively listen to veteran stories. It's that if you're an American citizen, you have a role in these wars, you are absolutely con you know, capable of having a conversation about that war and owning that conversation um, if you put the work in and take it seriously. I think it feels like also there's a, a couple of other themes, and I did just read your Brookings essay that was a lot about this, um, mm -hmm. and not just about engagement, but about the idea that, and I think this ties into, uh, you know, people seeing your friend in a different light than he would choose to be seen, is that for civilians, the default stance is kind of that our hands are clean because we haven't participated actively. Um, right. so I wonder about the tension that exists naturally, um, for a place like America where the war is not front and center every day, even though we are still involved. Um, how do we begin aside from reading, how do we begin to bridge that gap, uh, to a place where people are more comfortable talking with veterans to veterans, engaging in the topic of something as often politically charged as war is. Yeah. I mean, I mean, well, which is a very large question to ask you. So I apologize in advance. Right. So I, there, there, there's, there's a couple of different sort of areas where you can approach it. I mean, one is just sort of being educated about, uh, about the wars. Um, there's how you interact interpersonally with, you know, young veterans, right. New veterans. Uh, and there's also sort of like how you conceive of yourself politically, right? Um, and uh, you know whether or not you you feel connected to the kind of decisions that we're making. I mean, a, a lot of what has happened over the past 15 years has served to insulate civilians, not just from the effects of war, but even from the kind of decisions that are made, right? So we haven't had an authorization of military force since prior to the Iraq war. Uh, we're, we just designated just recently Al-Shabaab uh, a, a, to be somehow under the authorization of military force. So now we're, you know, we're, we're using an authorization of military force to fight an enemy that was not originally conceived of in that uh, document and operates on another continent, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's pretty wild. Um, and there's no real, there's no public debate about it because we've structured things so that we can just make that decision without going to Congress and forcing our legislators to actually be involved. Um, and I think that um, kind of on both levels, the starting assumption is that 
these decisions, whether they happen sort of passively or actively, they have something to do with you. So, I mean, there's, there's a, we kind of touched on this earlier, but like, you know, Kyle and I have never been to war. Uh, hmm. Our closest idea of what understanding what it's like is speaking with veterans. Um, and, you know, that's just not always an option for us. And uh, yes, I mean, we can read and do all of our research and, you know, uh, you know, educate ourselves on this, but also like there are a lot of barriers for people, you know, who have never served, uh, you know, we'll never have the same, you know, firsthand experience. We'll never have the same access to, you know, the people who have been there in, in the way that it really is. Uh, so, I, I mean, I guess my question is like, what else can we be doing, uh, you know, to help better understand this? And, uh, make it so that we're like a more involved piece. I mean, you had, in your Brookings essay, you had a uh, a line in there. Um, I think it might have been a Teddy Roosevelt quote where he's saying that you know um, people should be judged just as much as on their actions during peacetime as during wartime. Mm -hmm. The yeah, and and from my great speech, the the duties of American citizenship. Um, some some parts of which are a little bit outdated. He he thinks that one of your duties is to father many children. Um, <laughs> <very tender. laughs> um, but the, the other thing, and this is sort of this gets more broadly beyond war, right? Um, mm -hmm. Is he talks about how you know many of our young men rather plume themselves if if they just vote when that's the least of their um, obligations, and I think that whatever the issue that is most you know important to you is there's, there's probably an organization out there that is doing something about it right we just had an election and you know a lot of people were uh, especially where i live were utterly distraught uh about the outcome of the election but um there's you know sort of voting every four years to try and advance the issues that you care about and then there's um finding organizations, institutions that are actually sort of impacting people's lives on a day-to-day -day basis and not simply counting on sort of once every four years politics to redeem you, but actually putting in the work um, of helping build America towards the kind of country that you'd like to see. And I think that's related because the the, the key part for, for this is, for me, is, is citizenship, right? I came back from more and didn't change my perceptions of war so much as it did as it changed my perceptions of citizenship and the obligations that are a part of that, right? And look, I don't expect everybody to become intimately acquainted with uh, foreign policy and military policy. I think most people should become more acquainted than they are and less blasé about the sorts of things that we do because the decisions that we make have huge consequences in terms of human lives. I was just up in uh, Capitol Hill last week um, as part of a group, Vets for American Ideals, uh, which was lobbying Congress. We had something like 56 meetings with uh, uh, congressmen and staffers arguing for the uh, special immigrant visa program for Afghan interpreters, right? People who work for us whose lives are at risk and uh, um, who we had had it had been a sort of bipartisan thing that we had a visa program to help get these people's refugees to come to america and that it sort of stalled out um they just um added 1500 more visas which is good but not not sufficient um 
But that said, if that's not your if that's not your issue, right? That doesn't mean that there's there are not other aspects of of American life that you can be more intimately involved with. And and somewhere there's an organization, whether it's issues with immigration, whether it's issues with poverty, whether it's issues with education, whatever it is. Uh, I often feel that for a lot of vets, when they come back, come come out of the service, they want to continue serving in some way. I know I knew one vet who felt like he told me he didn't feel like his service was complete until he worked in the parks department, right? Wow. And, ah. uh, you know, dug trails with his own hand, given back to his country with his own hands. And I think that oftentimes guys like that feel maybe more in common uh, and more of a kinship with somebody working in an entirely unrelated field, right? Um, but still very much involved in building up uh, the institutions of American life. Uh, then maybe with some sort of, you know, vet who, <laughs> well, has gone in a very different uh, direction. There, um, there are two. Jeff, before you jump into this, I'm just going to pause and make sure we capture this half of the recording. So we're going to rolling again. So Good whenever you're ready. Yep. Okay. Um, so Phil, there are two things that I really noticed uh, reading your book two years apart. Um, the first, cause I, I actually read redeployment before the national book awards. Uh, so, I mean, you may have been a nominee at that point, but, um, you had not won and I, you know, read it and I, I devoured it in two days and I loved it. Um, and then I just read it again and it blew me away, you know, kind of your, I, I don't even know if I can call it like a premonition that, that you had with your writing. Um, but there was a couple of stories that really, uh, struck me as, as even more relevant today than, than the first time I had read them. Um, for example, and of course I'm blanking on the name now, but I have the book in front of me. So let me look it up. Um, psychological operations, um, is the story of, uh, you know, a, a vet, uh, who's like an Egyptian copt, um, who is in, uh, university after his tour and uh, he has some choice words for a uh, you know black student who um, had recently converted to Islam, um, and you know the entire story is basically you know a, a very in depth and intense conversation that the two of them had, um, and you know the the recently converted Muslim student, uh, you know was very offended at some of the things that this lifelong uh, you know Middle Eastern student said to her. Um, and it really hit on a lot of the ideas of like the PC culture that we're living in today, uh, which were, you know, enhanced, you know, in my opinion, greatly by the election of Donald Trump. Um, and I guess, you know, one thing that I'm, I'm just like curious to ask you about is how do you view this whole, uh, you know, argument where, you know, half of America thinks that these people who are fighting for, you know, religious and, uh, you know, just all kinds of freedom are these social justice warriors. And then, uh, you know, the rest of the country is just trying to like, you know, live their life and, and be successful in their own right. Um, well, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> I, I know. I'm sorry. We're, we're kind of for anybody listening, we're recording this like, you know, eight o'clock on a Monday night. So I, I'm sorry. We're hitting you with some, uh, some more intense questions than I think we had planned to. No, no, not at all. Um, gosh, yeah, the whole uh, debate over identity politics. I mean, 
so the 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 thing about that story is he's conversing in kind of the the, the memes that are operating in, in campus political culture, which is a very specific thing um, at a at an elite school, and the kind of he takes more he takes a more aggressive stance to the student than is necessary uh and she tries to route it through this sort of uh, uh i forget what the guy's uh, official title is um you know diversity coordinator or something mm-hmm. and like the dean of student diversity or something yeah, and he sort of, and the narrator kind of cynically, uh, you know, manipulates tropes about veterans and PTSD to, to get out of trouble, basically. Um, when the, the student, in some ways, just really wanted a, a dialogue, though, of course, uh, the method that she chose was probably the worst way to actually have a dialogue. I mean, I think as far as the, the kind of PC culture stuff goes, is that there's so much sort of cherry picking of kind of the craziest example on uh, each side. Uh, Whereas I think that sort of for the most part, that's not really how people operate. Um, The, you know, there was this uh, Mark Lilla article, the end of identity politics uh, and then somebody um, accused him of, of uh, perpetuating white supremacy and uh, compared him to a, a Klansman. It was like a fellow Columbia professor. And, you know, that sort of stuff is, is probably more what people are responding to than actual, like, identity politics, if you, if you term that in terms of, like, or... or PC culture in terms of, hey, like, we'd like people to be more respectful and maybe um, careful about some of the, the <laughs> offensive sorts of comments that, that happen on a college campus. I, um, uh, yeah, I'm not being particularly coherent here, but I think that a lot of the sort of paranoia over political correctness gets gets hyped out of proportion that said there are those people like the the columbia professor calling another sort of liberal columbia professor uh the equivalent of a klansman um who are kind of the the you know they're (laughs) they're giving everybody who is concerned with sort of racial issues uh issues of racism and in american society a bad name um by you know sending the discourse immediately to the gutter uh, i guess yeah. I wonder, and, and and you know i, I, I say, am i'm so i sorry to, to go on. i guess i guess that's the issue is that sort of um there's a way in which that particular type of thing which is i think is very different from identity politics writ large um that raises the temperature on uh, a discussion in which uh, small comments, even aggressive comments, uh, you know, kind of get 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 blown up or enlarged, or or mm-hmm. in which sort of um, 
it, it just it, it, it makes actual sort of dialogue and discourse and understanding more difficult to achieve. Um, and and, and I, I will say, you know, it is obviously, you know, we as three, you know, straight white males in New York probably have a different take on this than, than a lot of the rest of the country. But um, it, it just struck me as, as kind of, uh, you know, prescient uh, when, when I was reading that because, um, I mean, I well, think... I, it's, I, it's the, the reason that I'm, I'm trying to be careful here is because kind of things that get lumped in together with PC are like, you know, I remember seeing somebody complaining about some guidelines that a college had sent out and guidelines were basically like don't ask an asian student who you have never talked to before to help you with your math homework if you don't know them or like stuff like that it was like and they're like oh you know the pc police and it's like that's just kind of like you know common sense <laughs> yeah. like like i have no i have no problem with you know a college if they have you know, people doing that sort of thing to send out a sort of helpful, like, hey, don't be a dick. Um, that's, you know, offensive, and minority students have to deal with, uh, you know, a good deal of that crap that you don't. That's, you know, that doesn't bother me. I do feel um, like... I but, do feel... you know, at the same time, like, there, there are people who are absurd um, on, mm. you know, the, the fringe of that, who probably get more attention because of their absurdity than than they should but it's 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 definitely a thing and there's definitely um you know kind of people who who enjoy shaming um more than they should so you know i i, I suppose i'd be more interesting host on this if i had some sort of strident opinion but uh, <laughs> uh you know it was important for that story to work that both of them are being dicks yeah in the simplest that, manner that is true um, I think there is, I think there might be an intersection here, uh, with what we've already talked about, because this is the, you know, for as much as PC culture has done for the headlines, there is a part of this that is present in both Jeff and myself too, especially when he talks about how to talk to his veteran friends. Uh, cause the fear is always to say something that is the exact wrong thing or something that is so offensive to someone who's been there and lived that. Uh, that someone like myself or like Jeff, who's never experienced it, save through reading books like yours. Right. Um, do you feel that this is having an effect on the national discourse about what you are trying to engage people about in terms of? I, 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 I think that, you know, that might be related, right? Like if, how, how do you open up that space when, you don't know the rules of discourse yet. Yeah. Right. You don't know what's right and what's wrong. Um, and the easiest what? thing to do is shut that dialogue down. Right. Mm. Um, and, and here's, here's the other complicated thing is that you might, you might say something that's genuinely offensive, right. Um, that somebody has every right to be ticked off by. I mean, I've been asked, did you kill anybody more times than I can count, right? Um, and so, and I think that that happens in sort of racial discourse as well. My feeling on, you know, kind of veteran specific stuff is that I think those, I think those conversations need to happen. Mm. Uh, 
And at the same time, I think there's no way to make them not awkward. I mean, there's actually a really good example that we can point to. Um, you know, you wrote a piece for Esquire earlier this year during the election coverage uh, based off of something that Donald Trump said about PTSD and veterans. Uh, and, you know, you, you, you know, like it or not, and I'm sure that you like it, uh, have, have become kind of a, um, you know, a go-to name when it comes to conversations about, you know, veterans in our military and, uh, you know, other related issues in the national playing field. Uh, you know, you had a viral tweet storm about Syrian refugees and, you know, what our country is based on. Um, so I guess, you know, how do you feel about, you know, the direction our country is going uh, based off of those limited experiences? And, and uh, I don't know, I it, it just I, I didn't want to ask you about, you know, the election, but but it does sure. seem really relevant now um, more I than mean, ever. There, there are some issues that I care about that, um, you know, certainly some of the noise from the administration has me worried about. I, I mentioned that I was up with a group on Capitol Hill advocating for more visas for um, Afghan interpreters, right? Uh, and, you know, that's, that's that kind of thing is, um, and, and the work that that uh, group, Vest for American Ideals, which is part of Human Rights First, uh, that they do is is really important and it's going to have to keep keep on going um, certainly as long as we're still at war um, and there's a whole you know there's a variety of issues you know I, I, I think that um, you know sort of it's it's doesn't look likely that the next administration is going to make a, a move to accept a lot more Syrian refugees and I think that's a shame um, you know, but I, I certainly hope that they would, but doesn't, doesn't seem like it. Um, so we'll see. It's, it's hard to say what the, what the next administration is going to be and how exactly it's going to affect a lot of the issues that I care about, uh, what it's going to mean for military policy. Um, but you know, there's, there are a couple issues, uh, like Syrian refugees, um, where you know my positions are pretty clear and and in opposition to some of the things that, that that we've been hearing from that campaign or have heard from that campaign let's let's back up a little bit but, but, um yeah, this is, but this is this is the other thing right like that doesn't mean that there's nothing that can be done right yeah. um there there are great organizations the rc the jesuit refugee services that are doing really important work team rubicon has been operating um uh uh, a, a camp for Syrian refugees overseas. So th there are organizations that one can, you know, got at the very least donate to, if not um, volunteer work, uh, volunteer with to do do important work for that population. Um, so again, sort of goes back to what I said that uh, you know politics will not uh, necessarily redeem you if you don't actually you know get your hands dirty. So backing up a little bit, um, you know, just to take a little bit of a lighter note, because uh, I do agree with you. And I think that quite a few people, I know Kyle and I included, have been looking at other ways that we can, uh, you know, be more involved um, in, in the government. But um, <laughs> since this is, uh, you know, a writing podcast, um, you know, I, I know Kyle was very interested in asking you before about, um, you know, kind of like your process 
Uh, I'll let Kyle take it. I don't want to steal his question. Well, I was a, there was a question that seems particularly relevant now that we've gotten into politics, um, and especially in regards to your writing process. I remember reading or hearing through interviews that you were interested in one point at becoming a politician, and it sounds like you're already doing the groundwork um, just by getting Wait. your hands dirty, getting involved. I, I never said that. Where, why do I have this impression that I read somewhere that you were thinking down the line of becoming a politician? Am I wrong? Am I completely wrong in that? I have no intention of becoming a politician. No intention whatsoever. Well, the question no. was going to be, um, if you had political aspirations to become a representative, do you worry at all when you're writing stories like the ones in redeployment where you're depicting uh, you know, the people like, on the ground it, with scenes like uh, jerking off in foxholes and such? <laughs> that was going to be my big question. It's like, how do you square that with the idea that someday? Off of a building while your battle buddies look the other way i think is what you're what you're searching for uh yes that's the one yeah, yeah. In, in vietnam they had whores yeah that whole story would have to be sort of uh stricken from the public record before i could run for office um <laughs> so yeah so i you know if anything that that is the fact that i published that story should be proof that i'm not seeking uh, uh a, a job in government <laughs> um is there an aversion to it it seems like uh, maybe I just, in my mind, made that natural progression for you, uh, given some of your stances where it's necessary to get involved. Um, so I apologize in advance for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I <laughs> it, it is not something that appeals to me, uh, nor something that I think would, would, would play to my strengths. Uh, so... Does that sort of thought ever affect your process at all, though? Like, what... Uh... When you're trying to represent, honestly, for that for that story in particular, it was more the knowledge that my grandma would read that story. Yeah, um, right. You no. Know, so when you're writing, uh, you don't you don't think like, oh, this this story that's, I mean, really aggressive and and about you know, sex and sexuality and toxic masculinity and sexual violence. Um, you know, when you write that. Uh, you can't allow yourself to think of how other people might look at you, right? You just write it and you tell yourself that nobody needs to see it. And then <laughs> you look at it and you think, oh, crap. Like, I actually think it's kind of good. I'll probably have to show this to another human being and then never talk to them again. Um, and, you know, that's kind of how it works. I, I um, yeah, I, I wrote that and I read it to a couple of people. And they gave me feedback, uh, but yeah, it was a big it was a big step showing that that particular story to another human for the first time. But when you're writing, it's just the writing; it's just you and the writing. I mean, there's all sorts mm -hmm. of stuff that I would be embarrassed to show a human being, not because it's about you know dirty things, but just because it's really <laughs> bad. <laughs> Matt um, Matt Gallagher had a very similar story about that, um, where you know he was basically terrified. Not only of showing, you know, like his mom or something about a sex scene that he wrote, but also, um, you know, the reaction he would get from his wife, who at the time I think was his girlfriend, uh, just because, <laughs> you know, to an extent, like you're writing about what you know, um, and anything else, like, you know, it's something you learned elsewhere, so you don't necessarily want your your partner to know that, you know. Um, I do have another process question in terms of uh, in this same thread. Who do so? Who do you show that scene to that you're a little embarrassed about, but you think it's kind of good? 
what does the, the round of revisions look like for you in terms of who you send it off to and what you're looking to get back from them? Multiple stages. I, um, I, I had, you know, every story before it was published probably went through about maybe seven or eight people. Wow. Uh, I have one buddy read a hundred thousand words worth of one story in different revisions. Um, wow. Yeah, it's a good friend. Are, yeah. Yeah. I read his stuff too. In my defense. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. And my wife reads everything. Um, and she's a really good reader. Um, so I'll, I'll sort of tease at something for a while or I'll have something in my head for a long time. Right. So, um, I spent a lot of time doing research by research. I don't just mean like reading about factual details about the sort of situation that I'm trying to, to capture, but also like reading literature and mm. philosophy and things that might help me um, kind of find different ways of conceptualizing what I'm trying to get my hands around. And I'll gradually come up with sort of like things that are kind of shining in my head that I know fit together, though I may not know how. And so I'll usually write by hand at first and, and try and thread them together in a narrative um and i'll kind of slowly work at that usually I'll, I'll type on the computer after writing by hand. sometimes not even really look at what i wrote the first time and gradually kind of get a sense of kind of the left and right lateral limits of, of what this story is what it is that i'm talking about and then at a certain point when it, it feels like i kind of know what it is uh i'll send it to a friend um and then get feedback. And, and sometimes, you know, things go through drastic revisions. Um, the structure totally changes or the voice totally changes or, you know, just becomes a utterly different thing. Um, Prayer in the Furnace wasn't originally told by the chaplain, for example. Um, wow. it was told, yeah, it was told by the company commander. Uh, didn't work that way. Hmm. So... Uh, I, I mean, like you—you you seem to have kind of an exhaustive knowledge of of war stories, plays, books. Um, I mean, I, I haven't read an interview or, or listened to an interview where you didn't reference, you know, a dozen books. So, you know, I, I know that you look at all of that as part of your research. But, you know, what's your process like um, beyond what you've told us in that regard? Like, will you just seek out stories that have similar ideas to what you're trying to cover? <laughs> Yeah, um, uh, buying somebody a beer is an important part of the process sometimes. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> serendipity. I mean, you sort of <laughs> somebody and you're like, that is the craziest person I've ever met. And that is like, I'm totally putting them in, in, in a book somewhere. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, uh... <laughs> so so after all those beards that you bought and, and after all these people that, that the, the eight people that read every story and uh, you know your four and a half years of writing this and your 15 months of service or 13 months of service and your MFA, you finally won the National Book Award, um, which you know, as far as I can tell, it like wasn't even a goal of yours. Um, but how did that how did that feel? Um, it, it, in the moment, pretty, pretty damn shocking. Um, 
There, there's literally a video of you accepting the award, and, and it's like almost a minute before you can even say anything. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, uh, it felt pretty damn good, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I mean, there's like all kinds of, uh, you know, not not only are you now, you know, uh, you're you're cemented in the history of literature at this point, um, because you know it's only amazing authors that win that award. Uh, that, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, the National Book Award is like you know the Oscar, or the Emmys, or you know the Golden Globes of the book world. Um, and you know, there's there's a nice little financial spike uh, that comes from from uh, winning this award. We would you know, a lot of people a lot of people buy the book, uh, and you know, you become like an instantly recognizable name, at least in the publishing world. Uh, like, what what changed in your life after you won this thing? Um. <laughs> well, I mean, so a couple things. One, it just enabled me to reach out to a lot more readers, which is the whole point I wrote the, the book in the first place. Right. Um, which was great. Um, and it was also just it kind of was like, okay, like maybe I can do this thing. Um, you know, as a, for a living, we'll see. Uh, was but, that not the plan or the intent before that? Yeah, but look, like being a fiction writer is a financially shaky proposition. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, um, so it's, and, and it's just, it's a lot of uh, uncertainty, right? Um, so yeah, it, 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 it gave a, a, aside from, you know, the kind of recognition readers and all sorts of other things, it, 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 uh, it gave a certain degree of feeling a little bit more stability. Well, now there's, uh, Kyle actually, uh, found an article, um, or might've been a podcast or something where, uh, you, um, we're writing a script loosely based on uh, it would be an original screenplay, but it's loosely based on um, redeployment with Judd Apatow. No, no. Um, uh, it wasn't based on redeployment at all. Okay. Yeah. So what um, was it? It was it's like a, a set road trip movie, basically. Um, yeah. Uh, that was a, fun experience um i don't think i don't think it'll ever make it to screen uh i, I enjoyed his you know incredible working on it was a, he's a great guy um yeah i i it it changed the way that i watched movies i'll tell you that much really yeah no it it, it more cemented in my mind that they're very different things. I don't mean, I don't mean uh, greater or lesser. Just it's a radically different way of writing. Um, you know, you're not when you're writing a screenplay, you're not creating the art. You're creating kind of the bones for the art, uh, and that's very, very different. Feels very different. And, and also, you know, you can't, you know, in the stories, it's always about like taking the reader inside the skull of the character. And in the screenplay, you don't, you know, you don't do that, right? 
you know, the actor, I suppose, gets inside the skull of his character. Um, but you don't, you know, you don't take the reader of the screenplay into there. <laughs> um, well, he, he certainly knows what he's doing. Yeah. I mean, there's just all sorts of things that are that are different about it, right? I mean, it's because um, uh, I, I mean, I'm probably I, I can't really speak as any sort of great expert because I've written one book of short stories and and one you know screenplay uh, in my life, so. <laughs> True. Um, the uh, so the thing about um, the screenplays, it's actually sort of a tighter box than I thought it was. Right? It, there's not that many words in a screenplay. Um, the you know the medium is visual, so it just it moves in a different way than than a short story can. Um, you know, the, the, you know, psyops that you mentioned, right? Uh, the end of that story is the narrator telling, um, the reader a story about telling Zara a story about telling his father a story about, um, telling this insurgent basically a, a story um, that ends up getting that insurgent killed, right? That, and, you know, I tried very hard to make that read smoothly and as unobnoxiously as possible. Uh, uh, it, that would be a very weird thing to do in a film, right? Uh, even if you did do it, it would work in a very different way because then, like, the, um, yeah, it would just it would work in a very different way. Rolling again. Um, yeah, I do appreciate you, you know, even attempting to impart some of the knowledge of that because that's always it's it's one of the transitions that I find to be really interesting, uh, especially when I find a writer who I like. Just watching them at least try to bridge the gap between mediums, I think the the results are always enlightening in one way or another. Thank you. Uh, I think we have approached the point in the podcast where we pivot uh, sometimes with less grace than others uh, to, the, <laughs> to the story or the, the topic that you've struggled to write about personally. Right. Um, so I, I guess the, um, you know, the thing about the book when I look back on it, right, that if you looked at 
the time that I was in Iraq versus, you know, kind of what appears in the book, the biggest disconnect would be I was in Iraq in uh, 2007, January 2007, February 2008, right, in Anbar province. And during the time that I was there, Anbar went from the most violent place in Iraq to uh, radical decline in violence and sort of a sign of possible success. A lot of the units that I um, deployed out with, they left feeling very, very good about what had happened there. Uh, this was, you know, Petraeus and the surge and counterinsurgency. And oftentimes in fiction, um, well, you're interested in things when they go wrong, right? Um, so you can sort of, you know, when something goes wrong, things break apart and you can see what they're made of, right? But it's also interesting to look at somebody doing something well, right? Somebody doing something really hard well. And I did know commanders, right, who did their jobs very well. Uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the book, when it deals with um, kind of the battalion leadership, I mean, the, the most uh, kind of the, the, the most intense look that you get at, at battalion leadership is, is in prayer in the furnace, and that's about a dysfunctional um, battalion, right? And I guess if, if, if there's something that um, maybe would have been really interesting to put in the book was, you know, have a well-led battalion, right? And what that deployment looks like, um, even in a hard place. So, I mean, I, I guess, uh, you know, what you're getting at is that sometimes, like, it's hard for people to, you know, like, see the upsides when there's when there are so many downsides. Is that accurate? Well, I think that, um, you know, there's a kind of weird disconnect, right? So if people who read literary fiction and people who read, I don't know, maybe popular military histories, right? I, I, I spoke to two uh, classes. Um, and the professor told me, you know, sometimes you get students who come into this class on, you know, writing about war, uh, and they, they mostly read nonfiction and a lot of them read, read like popular nonfiction histories of world war two. Right. And so the narrative of those stories is always like kind of heroism and, you know, defeating the Nazis and, and, um, and that kind of thing. They're true stories, right? And then the kids who come into the class and they have a more sort of literary fiction bent uh, will have read, you know, the things they carried and Catch-22 and, you know, Wilfred Owen. It's all sort of the kind of the horror of war and the absurdity of war, right? And it's just two very different uh, starting places, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that with... Any, any kind of sort of literary fiction that's very much interested in the emotions and feelings of war, you, you have to deal with the dark side of it, right? Um, because it's tremendously important. Um, and yet, I think, uh, you know, I would get asked, you know, whether I considered the book an anti-war book. When, when President Obama read the book, the, the, he mentioned it on, um, on CNN. Uh, 
that he had read it, and there was a headline in Politico, which was something like, you know, the president reads an anti-war book. And I thought to myself, huh, you know, I, I didn't think of this book as an anti-war book, right? I mean, it's about the Iraq war. So it's, it's, it's not going to be a book that tries to pretend that everything went awesome. Um, but uh, the thing about wars, it's not just that sort of war is hell, but that it's about sort of people in this hellish environment making moral choices that matter, right? That it, mm-hmm. it may be hell all around, but some of those choices can lead to substantially less hell, right? But, you know, in, in the fog and confusion of that, it's very difficult to tell. And I think one of the interesting things about these wars, right, uh, counterinsurgencies where everything feels very murky and, and commanders on the ground are making, you know, kind of deals with local leaders and, you know, it's sort of difficult to tell what the long-term impact is going to be. One of the things that we've become very drawn to as a society is these stories of special operators of Navy SEALs going in and taking somebody out, right? It's this kind of clear-cut heroism where there's a bad guy, you shoot the bad guy, and then at the end, you know, and then you leave. And at the end of the day, um, you know, it feels like a morally clear distinction, but you don't know what the kind of second and third order effects uh, are going to be. And I think that's, you know, dealing with a company commander, battalion commander, um, trying to make those choices in kind of the, the inherently murky um, world that is a, you know, uh, a war zone uh, is really interesting. Um, it would be a really interesting story. Now, why is it that you think that, uh, you know, that would be tough for you to tell? Um, and I, I mean, I do understand the complexity of it. You know, for example, you even have a story in the book where you talk about, you know, death by an IED. Um, you know, is not only, you know, like an awful way to go, but it also doesn't leave the U.S. Army with, like, you know, stories of heroes or heroism where somebody's, like, right. pulling their friend out of a burning building or something. Um so, I mean, I guess it's like, you know, I, I feel like making that distinction is, is half the battle. I think that one of the reasons that it would be a hard story to tell is that it's kind of boring, right? That the, the day-to-day of that kind of activity um, is really repetitive. Um, it's actually funny. I think probably the most successful version of that is, is Mac Gallagher's Youngblood. Um, and he, he wraps a kind of counterinsurgency and sort of day-to-day of guys going out as the situation is changing with a, I mean, basically what's a murder mystery. And it's kind of a really brilliant way of, of structuring that novel because it that, you know, that book just pulls you through. Um, it's really readable, but but actually sort of depicts counterinsurgency the way that it happened and, and you know, that sort of the choices of that young lieutenant uh, as he's doing it. So, I mean, maybe, maybe the story that I always wished that I wanted to tell, but didn't tell is young blood, uh, and <laughs> wrote it. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> also, how did it feel knowing that president Obama read your book? That was, that was pretty amazing as well. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> but it was still pretty cool.
what what would you do if somebody if uh, if you know President-elect Trump said on CNN that, or on Fox, I guess, that he's reading your book? I I would be thrilled uh, to hear that he was reading my book. I would be very curious what his take on it was. Yeah. <laughs> and what kind of characters resonated the most with him? Yeah, I feel like he. Uh, I, I I don't know. I can't really speak. Yeah. <laughs> it is Monday. Well, Phil, thank you so much for joining us. This was uh this was really great. You know, we've been uh for for all our listeners, we've been trying to get Phil on the show for a long time. So um, you know, I know you're super busy and you have a newborn and uh, you know, you have a million better things to be doing in life. So we really appreciate you taking the time. If 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 any of my answers were incoherent, um I'll just blame it on the lack of sleep. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> thanks guys yeah thank you and uh okay so kyle are we done recording